Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. It's good to read me. It's from John chapter 6, verse 1 through 15. I'm Jeff and follow along. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that those people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Bow your heads. God, thank you so much for this opportunity um, for us to gather and to learn learn about you and um, just to strengthen our relationship with you, God. uh, I just pray that um, while Austin's speaking, we can all just um, have a peace and be focused on what he's saying. Um, and just take this time to be undistracted with um, everything that's going on in our classes and in our lives, God, um, that you just slow our busy minds um, and help us to just set our eyes on you. Um, I just pray for this week for everyone, um, that you would just be with us um, and give us peace throughout this week. Amen. Is that all? Is it, is it yes. working? Maybe it's my fault. Can you hear me? Is that good? Okay. Uh, howdy. Um, howdy. Howdy. Woo! All right. <laughs> Look, welcome to RUF. Um, my name's Austin McCann. I'm, I'm the RUF campus minister here. I just want to say how excited we are. I'm going to try and raise this a little bit. Maybe this is, hold on one second. I'm short, so I need height. Um, Look, we're so glad you're here. If this is your first time to RUF, uh, welcome. Look, we want this really. If you like, if you had a really hard week and you're exhausted and like you're taking exams right now, or if you had a great week and like last week was all your exams, like we're, we're really glad you're here. We hope every Wednesday this can be a night where you come and rest and receive to hear what Jesus has done for us and who He is. Uh, and if you've been with us, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, according to John. We've been looking at our theme in our series that Jesus is the bringer of life. And so tonight, by way of intro, I want to start out tonight by considering something that we're all used to. Because because we are messy, sinful, and really clumsy people, a common pattern that we can all relate to is the infamy of of things going from bad to worse in our lives. That's something we're just all used to. Right? Something goes wrong in the morning, and we just know, like, this is going to be a bad day. Like, we wake up, we spill our coffee, or you're making a bagel, and you drop it, and always the cream cheese side lands face down. Like, 
we, sl- we overslept for class, you're late, uh, you're stuck in traffic on Texas Avenue, you put your foot in your mouth and you say something dumb, or you get a bad score on an exam, or the Aggies lose to Mississippi State this weekend. Like, like we, uh, <laughs> I know, I'm gonna that. Like, we're just used to things going from bad to worse, right? Like, this is a, this is a common principle that we're just all familiar with. Like a principle that, that is uncommon to us, though, is actually getting something better than we hoped for. Like receiving something that is good, but it actually turns out being something better than we could ever dare dream. Something going from good to better than we hoped for is just rare for us in our lives. And like, I think a really good example of this is actually marriage. Like you, you know people who, like you know people in your life. Maybe maybe your parents. Like maybe that's your experience. You grew up in a good household with with a strong marriage. And let me just say this: like marriage is not easy. Like some marriages are harder than others, and there will be seasons of marriage that are just more difficult in your own life. If you're, if you're like here's a free premarital counseling advice. Okay, for those of you who are getting married, um, and those of you maybe one day will. Um, Right, the person that you marry on your wedding day, that same person, okay, is going to be different five years later into the marriage. And so will you. And that's kind of scary, but it's also beautiful if you're both trusting in Jesus daily and growing in Him. Like, because, because Alex, like the woman I thought I was marrying on my wedding day, who was beyond beautiful, like, and is gracious inside and out, like, five years later, like, well-aged wine has become better than I could imagine. Not because everything has been easy. Actually, we're a mess. There's been a lot of conflict. And we're just very simple people. Come hang out at the McCann home for an afternoon. You'll, like, you'll, you'll realize that quickly. Okay? But as we both grow in Jesus, as she continually learns my many weaknesses, she points me back again and again to the grace and truth that is offered in Jesus. Because if you would have asked me on my wedding day what I thought our marriage would have looked like, all of those expectations, all of those dreams that I would have tried to like explain to you would have paled in comparison to how far more abundantly our marriage actually is now. Yes, like including all of the conflict and our shared suffering that we've experienced together. And see, tonight what Jesus holds out for his people is offering to, offering to them something better than their hearts could ever dare dream. That the life he brings is not just something that meets our, min, our minimum and temporary needs, or even our most well-intentioned expectations, but life that is so overwhelmingly abundant, so eternal, so transformative, so beyond our greatest imagination, that it not only satisfies our deepest longings, but it's, it's life that never runs out. So we're going to consider three features of this passage tonight that Jesus brings life and he brings it abundantly. And so we're going to, three points for those who are notating, okay? Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is more than a king. And Jesus is more than enough. Okay, Jesus is more than a prophet, more than a king, and he's more than enough. And before we get into our points, right? I want you to imagine, like, I imagine this, this is a really familiar story for most of us. Even if you're a brand new Christian or if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, like, you may have heard of this story, the feeding of the 5,000. It's well known. It's the only miracle besides the resurrection that appears in all four gospel accounts. That's how significant it was. And briefly, briefly there are some important details that we need to consider in our passage in verses 1 through 4 that set the context for Jesus' miracle. 
Okay, so John tells us that Jesus was ministering at the Sea of Galilee, which was the northern part of Israel. And we know from the other gospel accounts that he's trying to get away to get some peace and quiet with his disciples. They're trying to get away from ministering to people, okay? But a large crowd was following him. And we've already seen in John's gospel how the crowds, amazed by Jesus, is not necessarily a positive indicator of real faith, but rather they have a great interest in his miracles. Their zeal is not so much for the message, or even the messenger, but for the miracles that this miracle worker is bringing. And we see that explicitly in verse 2, because it says this, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So it's hard, right, it's hard for us to blame, blame these, this crowd tonight, because most of us would be doing the same thing. right? Someone who is turning water into wine and making the paralyzed walk and like, giving sight to the blind. Like, that's someone who we would be interested in, too. We would be a part of this crowd. So here comes this very large crowd following Jesus. And John tells us that, and you'll see later why this is so important, that it was near the time of the Passover, okay, the Feast of the Jews. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that's okay. The Passover happened every year in the spring. It was a week-long festival where families traveled from all over Israel to, uh, to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this event in the Old Testament that, that we call the, the, the Passover, which was the Exodus event when God saved Israel by passing over them and eventually saving them out of slavery from the Egyptians. So it celebrated this great Passover event, but this is key. It also celebrated the future in hopes that they would one day be freed from the current Roman Empire, okay, which ruled over Israel at the time. So it celebrated the hope that one day they would be free from Roman tyranny and the oppression that they were currently experiencing. And that's really important for our our passage tonight, so keep that tucked away. So this is part of the reason why there are so many people and families traveling around the area of Galilee in our passage tonight. It was near the time of the Passover, so you have a lot of traffic, massive crowds of families on the road, far from home, and they're hungry. Like, there's no H-E-B, there's no Bucky's, like... But word spread that this man named Jesus, this miracle worker, was out there. And this brings us to our first point, that Jesus was more than a prophet. Because in studying this passage, we, we need to be cautious in walking away with one narrow lesson, okay? Because, look, I could close now and say, okay, this is a great story. All right, look at this amazing miracle. Only God could do a miracle like this. See how Jesus is proving himself to be God. He's doing a miracle that only God could do. Therefore, he's God. Right? Now, that's not an entirely wrong way of thinking. But that's not entirely accurate, accurate either. Right? We should be careful with the syllogism or the form of reasoning that says miracles are from God. Jesus did miracles. Jesus must be from God. While that may be, an element of that may be true, because if, but if you set that up, you're going to find people in the Old Testament who also did miracles who are not God. And you're going to find the apostles later in the New Testament who did miracles, and they're not God. So hear me say this. Yes, this is a major part of the purpose of Jesus' miracles and signs. That they were to authenticate his identity as the true son of God. That is true. But it isn't simply that Jesus was a wonder worker, therefore he was God. There's a bit more going on that we need to give attention to in our passage. Why? Well, I want you to imagine for a second, okay? Take off your brooks, your hokas, your on clouds, all right? Put yourselves in the, in the shoe, in the sandals of the first century Jew who would have been hearing and reading this story for the first time. Okay? Um, 
Because this story was written and told primarily to a Jewish audience who would have been well-versed in the stories of the Old Testament, which was their Bible at the time, okay? So they would have been much quicker to, than us to be filtering through this miracle and this story of the feeding of the 5,000 through the stories of the Old Testament. And the connection that the Jewish uh, hearers would have quickly made when hearing this story was hearing two different prophets that were connected in the Old Testament, okay? Moses and Elisha. Not Elijah and Elisha, right? There's, that's really confusing. There's, there's a prophet in the Old Testament named Elijah, Jay, and there's an, another prophet called Elisha, okay? This is Moses and Elisha, S-H, okay? And so the first is Moses. This is what they would have been thinking when they're hearing this reading this story. And this story shows us that Jesus is, better, is a better provider than Moses. Think of all the parallels between Jesus and the story and that of Moses in the Old Testament, okay? We have Jesus in the story in a desolate place. In Mark's account, uh, Mark's account tells us uh, of this in, in, in its account. That is, like, Jesus went into the wilderness to teach the story a lot like Moses did in the Old Testament, leading the people in the wilderness. Not only is Jesus teaching in a desolate place, but he's teaching on a mountain near the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so here's another, here's another marker. They would be thinking, okay, mountain, mountain. What happens on mountains? Well, big things happen on mountains. A lot of big things happen in the Old Testament on mountains. And here Jesus is the better Moses teaching on a mountain, okay? And finally, just as Moses gave the Israelites manna in the wilderness, now Jesus himself will give something better, even better than manna. He will give them the bread of eternal life. So we're seeing that Jesus is a better provider than Moses. And secondly, even more striking parallel is that we see Jesus is a better miracle worker than the prophet Elisha, okay? There are several hints that, that tell us that this story is meant to mirror the account of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4 in the Old Testament. And even if, if you don't even know what that story is, like, that's okay, okay? <laughs> um, a Jewish audience, though, they would have immediately recognized the similarity of these two stories. They would say, oh yeah, like that. This sounds like a lot like the story of Elisha. Like, if I, was, if I were to say lion's den, like, most of you think, oh yeah, like, Daniel. Like, that's a story that I remember in the Old Testament. When they would have heard this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, this is the story they would have thought of, okay? Let me just read for you really quickly 2 Kings 4, 42. It says this. Just listen to the similarity. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and, and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. So you hear that. There's obvious parallels. Boy, barley, baskets, leftovers, and even the question... How are we going to feed all these people? So why are, the, why are these immediate par parallels important? What Jesus is doing here when he is performing this miracle is he is saying, you think Moses is a better provider. Well, watch this. Like, you think Elisha is a better wonder worker. Well, watch this. Like, think about how Jesus' feeds the feeding of the 5,000 dwarfs Elisha's miracle that I just read. Elisha had 20 loaves. And he fed a hundred men. And they said, that's never going to work. And it took a miracle to feed him. But Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000. What Jesus is proving here is that he is not just a prophet. He is the prophet. 
And I think the ESV is right to capitalize the prophet, the word prophet. He's the one predicted in Deuteronomy 18, back in the Old Testament, where Moses announces that the Lord your God, he's going to raise up a prophet like me, but he's going to be better than me. In displaying this miracle, Jesus is saying, I'm better than any hero of the faith that has come before. I'm more than just a prophet. I am the prophet. And secondly, okay, we see Jesus is more than just a king. Or should I say, he's more than an earthly, political, military king. Okay, I mentioned earlier that it was the time of the Passover, right? And this is key. Because the Passover was not only a day that uh, commemorated God saving Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery from Egypt, but also a future hope to be delivered from the Roman Empire. And this is big, okay? It had a lot of religious significance, and it had a lot of national significance, okay? Passover was like the Fourth of, was like Fourth of July for America, or like the Bastille Day for the French. Okay, it was the time of nationalistic fervor. It was time of hope, celebration, and to remember what God had done to save our nation and what He will do. And this is also important, okay? There were all sorts of revolutions and revolutionaries afoot in these early days in the first century, okay? And they would lead thousands of people into the wilderness and eventually be squashed by the Romans. Here it is. But this crowd in this passage, they thought maybe finally, finally we found the one that we've been looking for. Like maybe this Jesus, he's the one political military king that can finally overthrow the Roman Empire. And release us from their tyranny. These were the expectations, okay? That finally, prosperity, this is the prosperity we've been looking for. And it's important to address how like, wildly the gospel has been twisted and perverted into a version of what we know today as what we call the, the prosperity gospel. Right? Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland. Like men who have truncated and twisted and minimized the gospel to saying that God's plan is for you to live your best life now. Its aim is solely for your health, for your wealth, and for your happiness, which are guaranteed on earth for all who follow Jesus. All you have to do is just believe enough. You see, this perversion of the gospel is not a problem that started late in the 19th century. But this twisted version of the gospel is what many people in this crowd actually believe in, the, in our passage tonight. That Jesus was here to bring health and happiness and freedom and to finally, as the political leader king, to free them from Roman tyranny. It's why the text says that Jesus per- perceived that they were going to take him by force and make him king. But Jesus was not a political revolutionary. He was not that kind of king. And he did not mean to bring that kind of kingdom. And like, if we're honest tonight, like we often still want to make Jesus this kind of king. Like, don't we? Like, we may, we may never like actually say this, but deep down, we try and force Jesus to meet our own expectations, our own desires, what we think is our greatest need. The Bible calls this idolatry. Like maybe that's fashioning and forcing Jesus to be king for the same political reasons like the crowd in this passage. Or we try to force our expectations upon Jesus and thinking that he's only our king when I have a girlfriend or boyfriend. Or he's only king if I graduate and land the job that I really want. Or he's only king if I get accepted into the right fraternity, sorority, or leadership organization. 
Or he's only king if I win my fantasy football matchup this week. <laughs> like, he, if he's only king if people notice and affirm how busy, busy I am every week. Jesus is the king of kings. No matter whether his, sub, his subjects realize it or not. And even when we want Jesus to fit into the kind of king we think we need, this is the beauty of it. He loves us enough to not give us what we want. Think about it. Because what's even remarkable in this passage, even when 5,000 people force themselves upon Jesus to be king, he shows this crowd, I'm not the sort of king that you think you need. And that's exactly the point. Jesus refuses to give the crowd what they want, Because he understands their true need. Like, what love and humility. Like, if if you and I had, if we were in Kyle Field and there are 5,000 people, like, screaming your name, like, lead us. Like, we we want you to lead us. Like, forcing themselves upon you. Like, we will follow you to the death. Like, most of us in here would probably be like, okay, twist my arm, why don't you? Like, I think I could probably do that. That sounds good. But not Jesus. He... He gets him and his disciples out of there. He leaves. He withdraws. Because he knows himself. He knows the will of his Father. And he knows that what he is bringing to his people is far better than temporary freedom. Something so much better than their hearts could begin to imagine. Which leads us to our last point. That Jesus is more than enough. Because you look at verse 6. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus is in full control of this situation. Right? This enormous crowd needs food. And Jesus tests his disciples knowing what he's going to do. That's what the text tells us. And he starts by testing Philip. or Philip, right? And, like, that doesn't go well. <laughs> and then Andrew pipes in and says, Hey, like, Jesus, there's this boy over here. And he has five pieces of bread and two fish. But, like, how's that going to feed everybody? And that doesn't really go well either. In classic discipleship form, right? In disciple form, they just, they just fail the test. And Jesus graciously uses them as ushers, though, to have everyone sit down. And in a miraculous moment, Jesus multiplies and distributes the bread and fish to all 5,000 and their families. So their bellies are fully satisfied. And not only does he satisfy their hunger, but all 12 disciples afterward walk around with an abundance of leftovers. Right, we've studied in John that when Jesus performs a miracle, okay, I know I say miracle weird, just bear with me, right? I'm going to say a lot. Uh, Like, when Jesus performs a miracle, he's always declaring something about himself. You see, the crowd is aware that Jesus is more than a prophet. He is the prophet. And after this sign, they believe that they can fashion him into their own king. But he isn't that type of king. He's the king of kings. But what they don't realize is what they're missing is that what they really need is a priest. Someone who will atone for their sins. Someone who will save them from their greatest need. Not temporary freedom from Roman tyranny or physical hunger pains, but from utter darkness and death. See, what Jesus states here implicitly in our passage will soon explicitly be declared in verse 35. That he is the bread of life, who is more than enough. That he not only satisfies our greatest need, but he gives us the abundance of eternal life that never ends. At what cost? On the cross, Jesus fully receives 
and satisfies the abundance of God's eternal wrath on our behalf so that the only leftovers is the abundance of eternal life and love. Jesus is saying to the crowd, okay, and to us, it's not that our expectations of Him as prophet and king are too big. It's that they're far too little. It's they're, they're far too ignorant. They're far too narrow. They're far too sparse and scarce. C.S. Lewis's famous line, he says this, it would, seem, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. That we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go, go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. And I'll wrap up with this. Um, in the recent passing of, of, of Queen Elizabeth II, um, there's, there's been a viral video that's gone around. You may have seen it. Uh, but it's come out about her bodyguard named Richard uh, Griffin, who humorously shares a story about him and the Queen hiking in Scotland. And the Queen would take her holiday every May in Scotland and would frequently be escorted by her bodyguard, Richard, to have a picnic. And one afternoon, as they were hiking up the hill, they were approached by two American hikers. And Richard said that the Queen would always stop and say hello. Um, so sweet. Uh, but Richard said it, it was clear from the moment that the hikers walked up that they had no idea that it was actually the Queen. They didn't recognize her. And so one of the American hikers actually strikes up a conversation with her, and he starts talking to, her, to the Queen about how he's visited England and, and where he's from, and, and he just asks the Queen, he says, well, well, where do you live? And the Queen, fully aware that he has no idea who she was, says, well, I, I live in London, <laughs> and I have a holiday home just over the hills. And the American said, well, how long have you been coming up here? And the Queen says, well, I've been coming here since I've been a little girl for, I guess, about 80 years now. And he says, whoa, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. And in her quick wit, she replied, well, I haven't, but Richard meets her regularly. And the American goes, really? Like, what's she, what's she like? And Richard says, well, she has a, a lovely sense of humor. And before he knows it, the American, like, walks up to Richard and puts his arm around him and hands the phone to the Queen of England and says, can you take a picture of us? And <laughs> this is true. Like, you can look up this hour. And eventually, like, they swap places, and the queen takes a picture of them, too. And then he, t the American hiker takes a picture of the like with the queen. And he still has no idea who she was. And after they left, like, the queen leaned over to Richard, and she goes, I would really want to be a fly on the wall. And, and see the picture of, of, of when he realizes who I really am. <laughs> and like, and that's a true story. Right? The ignorance of Americans, right? It never gets old. Um, <laughs> like, what's the point of that? Okay. You see, this very naive hiker in that moment, he thought he was experiencing something incredibly special. But when in fact, he actually had no clue that he just received something that he certainly didn't deserve, but also something beyond most people's wildest imaginations to actually meet the queen. You see, when we encounter Jesus, 
He offers himself to us, the bread of life. A life that not only satisfies our deepest longings, but is far more abundant than our hearts could ever dare dream. Do you believe that? Do you believe that what you need most is really him? He's more than enough. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that you are our great prophet, our great king, and our great high priest. Lord, we thank you for not allowing us to try to force upon you to being a God that meets our naive expectations. For through your life, your death, and your resurrection, you have satisfied our hunger and purchased for us eternal life that will never run out. A life full of abundance. Would you help us to believe that truth this week? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig'em.